Hello, and welcome to On The Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Lucy Briers. Lucy is a British actress who's perhaps best known for her portrayal of Mary Bennett in the BAFTA and Emmy-winning BBC adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Following in the footsteps of her dad, TV actor Richard Briers, Lucy studied at the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School, graduating in 1991. She has appeared in over 40 plays across the UK and in the West End, including a one-woman show performed in London and New York and two years with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Her recent screen work includes Justice League, Gentleman Jack and Endeavour. Lucy Briers, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. How are you? I'm good. I'm just recovering from a mild bout of COVID. I'm on day 12. So I went out for a walk yesterday. (laughs) First time out yesterday. Yeah, first time out. It's a little bit like coming back from a really amazing holiday, although sadly it wasn't. And you kind of think the world's going to have changed. But of course, everything is exactly the same. So, So yeah, slightly surreal. But I was lucky that I didn't get it badly. So you know, all good. Good. And you're on the men now. Touch wood. Yeah. Yeah. Going to take it easy though. Lucy, can I start by asking if you can tell us about a significant bereavement you've experienced in your life? Yes. Um, it, was di- it wasn't difficult to choose. Um, I suppose it's very upsetting in a way to say that in the last nine years, I've lost my father and three friends. So there was a part of me that um, thought perhaps I should talk about losing you know, my friends rather than my father. But Mm. um, I wanted to talk about the loss that has had the biggest impact on my life. And that is certainly losing my father who died nearly nine years ago now. And it's a big story in a way because the the way I handled the grief was not particularly good to start with. So I don't know whether that's of interest. Yeah, that is of interest. And I think what would be helpful Um, is um, if you could take us back to when your dad was first diagnosed Mm -hmm. Um, and it would be interesting to hear about what conversations if any the family were having at that time around what was happening and what may happen in the future. So my father was diagnosed around 2006 so about seven years before he actually died and he was diagnosed with emphysema Um, which was completely caused by the fact that he'd smoked since he was 14. He had given up in his late 60s, literally cold turkeyed it, um, because he'd gone to a doctor for an insurance checkup on a play that I was actually doing with him and my mother at the time. And the doctor had said, if you don't give up smoking, you'll be in a wheelchair in five years. And I remember him coming back from that and going, right, I'm never smoking another cigarette and we you know the whole family kind of went yeah right okay but he never did but sadly the the damage had been done and he was diagnosed about six years later with emphysema now my parents my mother is still alive my my parents are were from the generation where you just did not talk about things like this you know um stiff upper lip they were blitz kids you just got on with it so there were no conversations about my father's illness at all. And also my father was so angry with himself for the fact that this was a completely self-inflicted terminal illness. I mean, he was just furious with himself that he had done this to himself. So you didn't really want to talk about it because it just brought up so many awful feelings for him. And so we didn't talk about it. And my family, have a very dark bleak sense of humor so that's how we dealt with it and 
you know, even when he was in the last sort of year, 18 months of his life, he was on oxygen about sort of 12 hours a day. Um, and he'd be sitting on the sofa most of the time with, um, you know, little things up his nose and the oxygen machine, very noisy one going off in the next room. Um, and he'd perhaps go a bit vague and we'd just go, oh, up the oxygen. <laughs> you know, I mean, even that was a sort of joke, you know. Um, so there was no, there were, there was no preparation really. And after my father died, I asked my mother if she had had a chat with him, you know, husband and wife. And she said this extraordinary thing. She said, well, one day we came back from a doctor's appointment with his consultant and it was not good news, you know. And she said, we just stood in the sitting room and your father said, oh, this is really terrible, isn't it? And we had a hug and that was it. And I was just like, I had my head in my hands by this point because I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, because I was very concerned about my mother as well in terms of how she was going to navigate the grief, let alone me and my sister. But that was just how they dealt with it. That was their choice, you know. How was that for you? Oh, really difficult. I mean, really difficult. And my mother, I mean, well, my mother was already, we didn't realise this at the time, was already in the first stages of Alzheimer's. So, uh, I mean, I don't know whether that was already having an effect on how she was responding to the grief, but she completely shut down. I mean, my parents had been married for 57 years. You know, they met when they were 21 and 22. And you know, she had lost the person that she'd focused her entire life around. She was a very traditional housewife, mother, um, although she was also an actress, but she very much put her career third or fourth down the line, you know, after all of us. Um, I think the shock was so immense. And she, she told me that she probably cried about twice. That was it, you know, and then the disease sort of took hold. But I didn't really collapse until about two years later, to be frank. So, you know, grief is a, a very unpredictable mistress, I think. You absolutely do not know how it's going to treat you and how you're going to treat it. You just, you have no idea until you experience it. That's how I see it. So, yeah, I wanted to, I, I, I said to her, please go and talk to someone. Go and talk to a grief counsellor or... Um, my parents were not, well, my father was very not religious, but my mother had been quite a sort of regular Protestant church goer. And we've got this lovely local vicar near her. And I said, go and talk to Father Kevin. And she would say to me, well, it's not going to bring your father back. Mm. And I would say, well, that's not the point. It's about you now. You know, it's about you and your grief. But she never did. And then the Alzheimer's just became the focus. And that was that really. Yeah. How many are there of you in the family? There's me and my older sister. Okay. Um, yeah. And uh, the positive thing that's come out of all of this is that my sister and I have become much, much closer through the last nine years because we have had to become the parents to my mother. And that has been the greatest gift of this extremely difficult period that uh, we have found each other again. I'm not, not to say that we you know, weren't speaking or anything. We just, our lives are very different. And, um, you know, but we have re, I, I feel like we've not just rebuilt our connection, but we found a completely new connection through our shared grief and our shared loss. And the fact that we've had to run everything because of my mother's illness. So we've had to take over everything, you know, the financial affairs, the running of my mother's house, the live-in carers, the everything. So yeah, that has been the silver lining. Um, through it but very difficult for both of us because we come from this family where you know you just get on with it and you, you kind of make a joke about it if you can you know and it's a bit indulgent it's a bit indulgent <laughs> to, to get too wrapped up in your own emotions you know um so yeah it's it, it that's the gift one of the gifts that has come through this you mentioned that um your dad was at home and he was on oxygen and um, in, in that kind of last year of his life. Um, can you tell us about your dad's death? Yes. Um, I think everyone hopes, don't they, for the sort of gathering of the family around the deathbed and the sort of gentle, you know, passage of their loved one onto the other side, you know, and uh, 
sadly that was not uh, our experience and I think that also put me into the most tremendous sort of frozen shock um my father basically died of a massive cardiac arrest um at home and we had always been prepared for a sort of and actually I'm really pleased he escaped this because the slow exit through emphysema is horrific it's it's you ba you're basically drowning in your own lungs you know it's absolutely horrific and we were really preparing for that and we were starting to think well we'll have to bring his his um bed downstairs to the sitting room because he refused to have a chairlift put in and we did make a joke actually that my father died a week to the day when the Stanner Stairlift people came to do an estimate. And I think my father just went, oh, sod this, um, I'm out. I really do. Um, and he was always known in his career as a, a comedy actor who was very good at making swift exits, you know, very good at timing. Um, anyway, so we were not prepared for it. We'd been given an, a sort of vague timeline that we probably had about another year. And I mean, I can remember it like it was sort of yesterday but in scraps and pieces um it was a Sunday night my partner and I were sitting down we were eating a Chinese takeaway the phone goes and my mother said to me your father's collapsed in the loo and when I look back on that and the first thing I said to her was have you called an ambulance and she said no and when I look back on that I think that is that was already a sign of her own illness coming through because of course that would be the first thing anybody would do before calling their child you know so I said put the phone down call the ambulance we went over I, I live very close to my parents about a 10 minute drive I did not have a car at the time so we had to get a bus and we had the slowest London bus driver I mean most London bus drivers are you know the opposite I was literally sitting on this bus thinking why have I got the slowest London bus driver <laughs> in London on this particular night and um, we got to my parents house the ambulance was there and we rang the doorbell and a paramedic came to the door and said, do you want to come around the side? Because I don't think you should see your father like this. And I said, no, I'm, I'm coming in. I, uh, he's my father. My partner went round the side just for respect, you know, um, and went through the back of the house. And my father was lying in the hallway of his house and uh, they were trying to resuscitate him, basically. That's all I can say. And we were ushered into the kitchen. My mother was standing there in complete shock. My sister was not able to be there that night because she lives in Sussex. And at the time we hadn't even thought about getting hold of her. And we were also very concerned. We didn't want to kind of call her and go, right, you know, dad's, you know, collapsed on the floor because I know she would have immediately wanted to get in a car. And we were, you know, it's all that. You make those very quick decisions of like, we wanted her to stay safe. But sometimes I regret that. Sometimes I think she, should have been there you know um although it was so traumatic so in other ways I'm glad she wasn't um and then you get into the bleak British humor of of you know the paramedics say well just make some tea and it's like 10 o'clock at night and I'm thinking I don't drink tea after about 5 p.m I don't know why but we made tea we made tea like you know like the good British people we are we made tea and sat around this kitchen table literally listening to them going clear and and all that going on in the hallway and after about the fourth or fifth time of hearing that noise I just sat there going please don't please don't come around dad because I don't know who you're going to be you probably won't be the person we know and you'll probably be so I, 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 I don't want you to come around and then a paramedic came in and said uh, in a beautiful massive British understatement uh, we're going to blue light your father to Charing Cross Hospital and um, he is very unwell and I wanted to say to her, he's dead, isn't he? <laughs> I mean, I really mm. did want to say mm. that. I want to say, I think he's dead. Isn't he dead? I think I think I saw a dead body when I walked into the hallway. And, um, you know, but they can't say that, of course, you know, and they're trying to protect you. So my mother went off in the ambulance with my father. I drove a car. Don't quite know how I got there. Did the worst bit of parking I've ever done in my life, then ran into Charing Cross. It was by this point about, oh, I have no idea, quarter to 11, something like that. Couldn't find A&E. Nobody was around. I mean, it was just, it was it was like a sort of Kafka-esque nightmare and then found A&E. And we're, we were ushered into a family room. And about 20 minutes later, a doctor came and said, you know, he's he is dead. We, we can't resuscitate him. 
And so my mother and I went and said goodbye to him. Oh, I do feel quite emotional, actually. It's been such a long time. I kind of, it's, it's, but it is very, it was such a traumatic night. And my dear father was lying on a, you know, A&E trolley. And, um, but it wasn't my father. It's that classic thing, you know, the soul has gone. Mm-hmm. And... I made myself kiss him on the forehead because I kind of didn't want to. I was kind of quite freaked out. It's my first dead body. And, um, you know, it's not a particularly pretty sight. And um, again, not much prepares you for that. Um, And I remember saying to the doctor, please look after him. Please look after him. The, The idea of sort of leaving that building and leaving my father's body in that building was really hard. You know, I wanted to uh, protect him. You know, I wanted to stay with him, but obviously we couldn't. And, and then we drove back and I dropped my partner at our flat. And then I went and stayed the night with my mother. And I actually stayed on and off at my mother's for the next kind of couple of weeks as we organized the funeral and just so that there was someone with her. And I remember going to bed that night and and the absolute realization hitting me that I was never going to see my father again. And I was never gonna talk to him again. It's very, very hard, you know, the, the finality of it. And that realization, you can't pick a phone up, that's it, he's gone. And when we arrived home after leaving him in the hospital, I had this extraordinary kind of almost spiritual enlightenment moment. We walked into his house, the house he had lived in since 1967. So they moved in when I was four months old. And I didn't realize, I hadn't realized when I'd seen him in A&E that he'd lost a shoe when they'd taken him onto the ambulance. So there was one of his shoes was just left on the floor in the hallway. And the paramedics had pushed everything aside in the hallway. to to make room to try and resuscitate him. And I walked into the house and I thought all of this, all this, all these possessions, all of this that my father worked so hard for and gave us and the stability and the beautiful home he worked for. I was like, oh, it's kind of, it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's like, oh, it's just things. It's just this, it was this extraordinary thing that suddenly without him there, I just went, oh, so he's free now. He's kind of, he's not bound by all of this. It was just the most amazing <laughs> experience. Um, it's kind of moment of understanding that things are, well, they are important, of course, a home, a roof, you know, being able to feed oneself. All of those things, of course, are vital uh, for one's quality of life and health. But possessions, I, I don't know, I have a very different feeling about them now. I declutter almost annually and I'm not as sentimental about things now because I just had this feeling that my father was, you know, he was off. He didn't need any of these things. Mm. And they didn't mean anything without him. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. I mean, the house still means a huge amount. My mother still lives there, although we are moving her into a care home this year because her needs have become too much for for live-in carers to sustain but you know she wanted to 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 live there as long as possible so you know that house has seen the entire family life of the Briars family you know from the late 60s and that's no small thing but yeah they meant less because my father wasn't there yeah so that was you know and it's that interesting thing isn't it in the press because he was a well-known figure of course they do that thing of you know Richard Pryor's passed away peacefully at home. Well, I hope it was peaceful for him. You know, I hope it was, what I hope is that uh, he literally just went. Um, And, uh, but it was not a a peaceful experience. It was not, it was not that sort of, you know, slow saying everything you mean to say, farewell. You know, it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty brutal. And I think, perhaps the experience of the death you know the the type of death a loved one has 
perhaps is then reflected on the process of grief. You know, I have a feeling if it had been a slower, gentler passing away by a bedside, my grief wouldn't have kind of just frozen in aspic, which it did for a couple of years. For two years, you said it was until two years later. Can you tell us about that, Lucy? Well, you know, if you put this into a film, people would think it was a bit over the top, but this is absolute gospel truth. <laughs> um, I am next of kin to my aunt, my father's sister. She has no children and she has very, very numerous health issues. And um, I ended up being in an ambulance with her two years later, going to Charing Cross Hospital um, to the A&E department got into the department she's being dealt with and I look up at the number of the cubicle and it's the same cubicle where my father died and that's when it all Gosh. went yeah that's when it all went it all just fell apart and I started shaking I started sort of and I'd been to a grief counsellor you know I'd done I'd done six sessions with a grief counsellor and I cried a lot and I'd done all of that that was about a year before and I a typical you know member of my family I go well that's done I mean, I'm absolutely, that's marvellous. Well, that's sorted. There we go. Um, you know, and, uh, but my, I started to shake and I thought, right, well, I, I can't do this in front of my aunt. She's got her own problems to deal with. So I, again, classic British moment. I said, I'm just going to the bathroom. And uh, I then went and, and sort of proceeded to have a sort of, what I can only describe as kind of nervous collapse in a disabled loo, shaking, crying, uh, almost like I was in pain, you know, and again, very British after five minutes, went, right, I've got to pull myself together. You know, so sort of like wash my face and went back to the cubicle by which point my aunt was stabilized. And, uh, you know, she's very used to these uh, hospital visits. So she said, look, they're gonna take me in for a few days. Can you go and get a few things from my house and blah, blah, blah. So I was very glad I was able to leave. But um, 24 hours later, I was sitting uh, on my sofa, watching some, you know, completely sort of benign television program and I literally had an out-of-body experience I literally felt like I was watching myself crumbling like a statue like cracking cracking falling apart and I thought right okay come on you can't hide this anymore you can't run from this anymore so I texted a friend of ours who's a psychotherapist and I said can you recommend someone I need I need some help and uh, I'm very fortunate that he put me in touch with an amazing psychotherapist and through the work I did with her, not only actually about the grief, but kind of, it then kind of snowballed into all sorts of other things and areas of my life. Uh, she has changed my life. I mean, my life is a very, very different landscape now. Um, but yeah, that, that sort of saved me. That saved my, my sanity and allowed me the time to work through losing a person who had been so incredibly important to me in so many different ways and so beloved you know and yeah it's it's allowed me that that journey which I'm very very lucky to have gone through. I think that's really important what you just touched on there when you described how um, in, in your therapy then it wasn't just about the grief but actually it was about um, you know it, it's it spanned kind of all areas of your life and I think you know what lots of people don't often realize is that grief does impact on everything or can impact absolutely. on everything absolutely I funnily enough I, I am reading H is for Hawk you know by Helen MacDonald which is a, a, a book about grief and losing a father you know um, as well as falconry um, and it's quite an extraordinary book and um, I'm very near the end of it now and she talks about the fact that your world is literally and well, oh gosh, no, I was I, figuratively never the same again. Well, no, and literally <laughs> um, once you lose somebody who is that close to you. So you have to understand that and adapt to that and and learn how to move forward through that new landscape and try not to hold on too much to the old landscape and that has been my biggest biggest sort of journey of, of allowing myself to let go of things you know because my father was a public figure um and and some people would would have called him a national treasure I mean we used to take the mick out of him sometimes and go come on love you know you're a national treasure um um it, the other the other aspect of the grieving, which I think was another reason why it went on hold, was because we were also dealing 
with the loss in, in the general public. I mean, which was astoundingly affectionate and to begin with of great comfort. I mean, in the first week, my mother received something like 750 letters and cards, wow. you know, about my father, about things my father had done for people that we had no idea about, you know. And of course, that was incredibly comforting and almost like a sort of little life raft for us. Mm-hmm. But after a while, you start to go, now, hold on a minute. Am I, am I sort of processing my grief through this kind of prism of the public grief? I, I, I need to be grieving my father. I don't need to be grieving, you know, Tom Good from The Good Life, you know. And I remember I sort of slightly snapped a couple of weeks in because, I mean, the cards and letters just kept on coming and kept on coming. And a letter came through and I, I mean, we didn't reply to any of them, you know, I mean, but we kept many of them. Um, but there was one letter and it came from somebody I think my father had worked with briefly. Um, and it was a very well-intentioned letter and it was a very dear letter about my father. There was this one thing where this person said, the day I heard your father had died, I cried all afternoon. And I just suddenly thought, seriously, really? (laughs) And I got really cross because I was like, you, I haven't even, I'm his daughter. And I haven't, I think I've cried like for three minutes. You know, this was like three, four weeks after he died. And I thought, how, how can you, somebody who barely knew this man, say you cried all afternoon? And I suddenly got really cross. And I thought, right, I'm not going to read any more of these letters, even though we were, as I say, I don't mean that to sound cruel or dismissive, but it was of no, no help anymore for me personally. I think my mother actually got a lot of comfort from them and and kept them in box files and they're still in her house you know but I just went I can't do that I can't do it anymore because I I kind of felt like my my grief was being overwhelmed by a, a, a sort of public grief which which was ultimately of course not as deeply felt as mine you know and and again I don't mean that to sound in any way unpleasant but it was a very unexpected part of my grieving process and um you know a lot of people my father stood uh, or represented for a lot of people their childhoods because of rhubarb and custard and the good life and all these things so it was a, a general mourning for people's own childhoods and innocence and all that sort of stuff but I had to remove myself from that after a while because it was it it I had to remember that he was my father. (laughs) Sounds really bizarre, but yeah. No, it doesn't at all. You're talking about what about my grief? What about my experience? How do I begin to even navigate it or think about it when, you know, so many others are joining in with this? Yes, Um, and and wonderful and, you know, so heartfelt and so genuine. And and meaning to be supportive, but yeah, after a while, it just it just for me personally, it just wasn't anymore. It just was something I had to shut out, you know, um, and focus in on the man we had lost, you know, the the husband my mother had lost, and the father my sister and I had lost. Um, yeah, and that that takes some doing, you know. Some of life's questions are harder than others. If you or a loved one are facing end of life or bereavement, Marie Curie is here to listen and help. Call our free support line on 0800 090 2309 or start a web chat by visiting mariecurie.org.uk forward slash support. You described before, I'm going to talk about navigating again, you described how people can reach a point in grief where they've got to navigate the new world that doesn't have that person in it anymore as a physical being. And so you talked about therapy being helpful. It sounds like also reading books about grief is helpful. What else has helped you? Well, um, do you know, funnily enough, this is the first book about grief I've read. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, I didn't want to read about grief because I was like, yeah, I'm in it. I need to read about it. Um, it's so funny. It's like I, I don't read a lot of female authors because I'm like, I, I'm living the female experience. I want to read about the male experience. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, I I think 
um, the thing that helped me enormously and has always helped me to be frank is my work because I'm an actor to be able to escape into being another person. It's, it's just such a relief sometimes if your life is tough. I mean, I, I went through a very difficult divorce um, about, oh goodness, 16 years ago, 15, 16 years ago, uh, which is another process of grieving and mourning and another process of going, oh, the landscape I was walking is not the landscape I thought I was walking. You know, all of that goes on. And if I hadn't worked, oh my goodness. So I didn't work after my father's death. I didn't work for about six months because I just said to my agent, I can't, I can't do this. I can't work. And I did lots of voiceovers. Thank God I always do. So that's, you know, that made the bills get paid. And then I got a job with the Royal Shakespeare Company, a company I've never worked for before. And I got into the company to do um, Hilary Mantel's, you know, adaptations of Hilary Mantel's amazing novels, Wolfhall and Bring Up the Bodies. And I was playing Catherine of Aragon and Lady Rockford. Lady Rockford is a fabulous, sort of wonderful, mad lady who is Anne Boleyn's sister-in-law. So that was so much fun to play because I could just be completely off the wall and just, it, I had so much fun playing that. Catherine of Aragon, who was quite a lady, my God. Um, well, I, this struck me literally this week. She died of a broken heart. You know, she died at the age of 52. I think it was 51, 52. And they did a post-mortem, which is kind of weird. I, I didn't quite understand why they did that, but anyway, they did. And um, she had, everything was completely healthy apart from this black tumor around her heart. I mean, come on. I mean, that's just kind of Shakespearean in itself, isn't it? And, um, and I, I think that was extraordinary for me to play. And this was before I'd had my collapse with my aunt in, in Charing Cross. So this was, this was the time when I was still not really facing up to my grief. And, but to play someone who is so uh, utterly like <laughs> bitter and angry and morally so in the right actually, and, and fights and fights for her status and, and for people to still respect her. I, I, I think I channeled an awful lot of my, un, unbeknownst to me really, into that woman. And it was, an inc- it was very cathartic to go on stage and play her and, and have that sort of be able to be angry and, and sort of full, of full of darkness. It was, yeah, it was so, I think my work is the thing that got me through that. And I, and, and I mean, I played that part for two years because we did it at Strapped Upon Avon, then we did it in the West End and then we went to New York. So I love that woman. <laughs> I have a real, I feel like I almost know her. Oh, I do. I feel like I know her because if you inhabit a person from history for that amount of time I think you kind of do I think you know that person so yeah that's so interesting I've never I've never heard an actor talking about you know kind of linking their work to their experience of grief and mm. it makes complete sense mm. um and and it's really interesting I just I just want to go back Lucy to um at the beginning you said that um there were three other people Mm. who you, you might want to talk about today. Yes. Um, are, you, are you okay to share those stories? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, the first friend I lost after my father's death was in the same year, actually on my birthday. <laughs> I was like, oh, come on. Um, she was very elderly and we knew she was dying. She had pancreatic cancer, but she was a real life mentor for me. Um, I um, have trained as an energy healer in my time and she was somebody who led me very much through that process and she was a healer. She was a co-founder of the Bristol Cancer Help Centre, now known as the Penny Bronze Centre in Bristol, Pat Pilkington. She was the most extraordinary woman. Um, And I met her many, many, many years ago when I myself was dealing with a very rare non-cancerous tumour in my early 20s. And her husband did healing work on me and to extraordinary effect. So Pat and her husband, Christopher, were people who were very important to me in my life. And um, Christopher died some years before. And I used to go and stay with Pat in Bristol and we'd have these wonderful weekends together and we'd do healing sessions and we'd talk. I mean, oh, my God, she she was just like a sort of well, she was she was like a spiritual mentor. Mm -hmm. So to lose her in the same year 
as losing my dad, who was also a real life guide for me, I did feel very orphaned in, in, in the widest sense of the word. Um, and especially because my mother was already starting to not be quite my mother. Uh, so these kind of guiding, these anchors were just <laughs> disappearing all over the place. So that was very hard and um, although expected. And then the next year I lost a friend of mine, uh, an actress who totally unexpectedly from, uh, she died of an asthma attack. And I got the news while doing a matinee of Wolf Hall dressed as Catherine of Aragon, actually. Um, I was in my dressing room, the phone went, her name came up on my mobile. She and I met on one of our first jobs. So we'd known each other, I'm just trying to think, 20 odd years. And we had these silly characters we used to do to each other. We used to do these silly old women who talked like that. And, um, and I picked up the phone and went, hello, darling. And it was her, like one of her best friends saying, hi, Lucy. It's, and I just thought, oh my, oh my God, what, what is going on? And I remember, so I'm in kind of massive, heavy 16th century costume with a very tight corset. And I just couldn't breathe. I was just going, oh! like this and you know the, the actress I was showing dressing with them was going okay well oh my god you know and I was very fortunate that the next scene I was supposed to be on I didn't say anything so the stage manager said you're not going on but I did have to go on like five six minutes later I mean you know so um that was horrendous mm -hmm. um and then the last friend I lost it was about and I kind of have lost track of time now probably 2016 maybe even 2017 was a friend of mine I'd known since we were 15 and we did youth theatre together and she died of blood cancer and I had gone to see her in hospital about a week before she died and she was somebody again who never ever communicated to her friends how ill she was that's not how she dealt with it but when I went to see her I remember I mean I was literally in full PPE you know pre-COVID because she was going through her treatment and I had to sit way away from her but I remember thinking to myself I think she's dying I just remember she she got out of her bed to go to the bathroom and I looked at her her shins her shin muscles and I thought I, I think she's dying you know and she died about six days later uh, and she was somebody who had been you know again a constant in my life we wrote comedy together we were so different in every, every possible way. We were like total polar opposites, which was what was so great about our friendship. So yeah, within three, four years, I'd lost my father and three people who had meant a lot to me. And it did feel like I was just being punched. I just remember thinking, I, I don't know how I can deal with, I, I don't know how I can keep dealing with this. And, and one of the big things that it has massively shifted in me and which I really work hard to fight against is the fact that I catastrophize. So I do, if I say goodbye to my partner or I say goodbye to my stepdaughter or I say goodbye to a friend, I have this appalling feeling that I'll never see them again. And I still have that. And I think something terrible is going to happen. Or, you know, if my partner, if I'm at the top of the house and I call down to my partner and he is actually slightly deaf in his left ear, so most of the time he doesn't hear me, it might be selective as well, but I will call down to him. And if he doesn't respond, I swear to you, 70% of the time, I think, oh, he's had a heart attack. Oh, he's dead. I, I still think that. Um, so that's something, yeah, I have to keep working on because, you know, you can't live your life like that. You can't. But I think it's that thing of my father died so suddenly my friend died so suddenly of an asthma attack my you know these people are just snatched they're just snatched away from you and you know these people that you've literally spoke to a week before or in my case my father two days before or and as you, you know it's so uh absolute the absence is immediate and absolute you know and uh yeah so i, I yeah there, there was a huge a huge level of trauma um has happened but I think so many people have experienced that in the last couple of years, especially because of COVID and that horrific thing of not being able to go and say goodbye to your loved one in a hospital. I, I can't, I mean, at the beginning of COVID, my mother's so damaged now by Alzheimer's and my worst nightmare was the idea of her ending up in a hospital, like one of those massive Nightingale hospitals. This was at the time when, you know, we had no idea where the, the pandemic was going to go. And I just had this, this vision of her alone, you know, oh my God. I mean, I, so I think a lot of people 
have been so traumatized and and not been able to witness in a in a proper way that the the passing of their loved ones and i think that's in my experience that that seems to be when when grief and the process of grief is is a long one i think if you can't witness it or the witnessing of it is very scarring i think that's that's a very hard process i'm going to change tack slightly lucy I'm, and, yes. and I'm, i want to ask if if you ever think about your own death i do <laughs> i'm quite morbid um I've already I keep a regular update of things I want read and played at my funeral uh but I think that's just my control freak side but um yeah I I've experienced um illness uh, in my life so I am not somebody who has not faced the idea of my mortality um I had a very rare as I said earlier tumor in my 20s and I had six operations over nine months when I was like 21 22 and at 21, 22, you're gonna, you kind of think you're going to live forever. You know, you're like, yay, great. My God, I'm immortal. And then this happens and you go, oh, what, wow. Uh, so that was, that was quite an early initiation into things aren't quite as simple as they may seem. And one's health is not as robust as one may hope it will be. And then about 11, 12 years ago, I was diagnosed with a very rare, like my tumour. I mean, I'm just, my loved ones always roll their eyes if I... <laughs> So I come back from the doctor and go, yes, it's another rare thing, you know, um, but I, I have a rare blood disorder. There's about a thousand of us in this country that have it. There's about a million people across the planet that have it. Uh, no one knows where it comes from. It's a gene switch. It's, you know, no, there we go. The, the research on it is is moving forward. But, you know, I am very lucky with it. I am asymptomatic like 99 percent of the time. Some people are very, very badly affected by it. Um, and again, touching wood, I don't take any drugs or treatment for it apart from a blood thinner. But when I was told I had it, I was uh, at that point under the care, I'll put that in speech marks, of a uh, very, um, uh, what's the word, uh, kind of consultant who has that kind of God complex little bit. And, you know, I think a lot of consultants and a lot of brilliant doctors and surgeons almost have to have that in order to be able to go I'm going to do a heart transplant today you know you kind of have to have that level of sort of like arrogance uh but this person was particularly kind of judgmental and unpleasant in terms of sort of telling me the diagnosis you know kind of saying you've got this there's nothing we can do about it we don't know how to treat it I mean they do know how to treat it but they don't know how to cure it and um and there you go and I said oh well okay well I, I I'll look into some complementary treatments as well and she this person just laughed in my face and then handed me um, a leaflet about this blood disorder and said, oh, just read that at home. And I was sort of sent out, you know, it's kind of going, oh my God. Anyway, I foolishly read the leaflet the next day on my own. And at the end of probably every other paragraph, it said, and you can die. It just kept saying it. And you can die as if it was like, you know, and, you know, you can go for a walk. And you can die. And, and by the end of it, I was just, I, I was literally having a panic attack almost. I mean, it was, it was, the fear of death was <laughs> enormous, you know? And I mean, I made a formal complaint about the wording of the leaflet and it has been reworded. Good. And I think, I think for the, for the person themselves, but also who else is going to pick that up? Who else is at home? Who yes. else is going to read it? Yes. If, if I'd had children or absolutely, you know, so anyway, I, you know, I'm very fortunate. I made a very conscious effort and I'm able to, because I am asymptomatic. I live alongside this disorder. Um, COVID was a huge shock to me because I was labeled clinically vulnerable and for someone who goes yeah I've got this disorder it's fine it's just off over there it's not a problem absolutely fine and then to get a black and white letter going and you are in the clinically vulnerable I was like oh god okay so I did spend most of 2020 uh not going outside I mean I will absolutely admit to that and my partner was amazing and did all the shopping and did all that because I was like I you know and there would have been, if I'd got it really badly before the vaccinations, there would have been pretty high odds that I would have been hospitalized and maybe worse. So, you know, yeah, I think I have thought about my death quite a lot. Um, and having just had what I presume was Omicron, having been triple vaxxed and having a mild bout, oh my God, the level of, of relief that you go, this thing that I have feared for two years 
that could lead to my demise. I've now kind of experienced, you know. So yeah, I I do think about my death. I don't want to go yet. Let's put it like that. I'm 54. I have a lot more to do. I'm still frightened of death. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I have a sort of weird spiritual feeling that we get recycled. So <laughs> I think we come back. I think um, I feel like I've been here many times, which means I'm not learning what I should be learning. Um, but <laughs> I, feel, I do have this very, very, very clear memory of when I was about six or seven, lying in bed and saying out loud to myself, this time I'm Lucy Briars. I just remember just going, okay, this is who I am this time. I just had this absolute kind of undiluted certainty that that this was who I was this time. So I've never forgotten that. Um, so yeah, it's not, I don't have a sort of, you know, we all sit on clouds playing harps uh, view of, of what might be after, but I certainly feel there is an energy that continues and that does bring me comfort. I know that sounds all a bit wishy-washy and a bit, but it, yeah, it brings me comfort and it makes me feel that there is some purpose to what we do here. And it gives me a sort of guide to how we are, how we behave and how we are uh, as human beings and how we operate and should operate and all of that. So yeah, I'm, I'm scared of it. Um, just in terms of how those final moments might be for me um but I know this sounds really bizarre I'm also like there's also a sort of like it, it, it'd be quite exciting to know who, what happens to me next time <laughs> I have no idea god knows <laughs> well god doesn't know I, I don't know I don't oh it's terrible I'm so I'm the kind of person that people who have a real firm belief just kind of go oh for god's sake make your mind up you know because I literally it's like I have a kind of smorgasbord uh, approach to faith you know where I go oh that's oh I quite oh, I like that one and oh that's nice when that, <laughs> I and I I'm afraid I'm, I don't adhere to uh, like an organized religion because I I worry about the fact that you know that kind of by following one faith you sort of block everything else out you know and there's so much I think there's so much more to this world than we have any idea about and you've talked and you've you've talked quite a bit about spirituality and I think that you know that makes mm. sense you know you choose the bits that mean something to you yeah. and also help and support you as well yes um I've got a couple of more questions just before we finish off today Lucy and um one is how would you like to be remembered when you die I think someone who um was a really good friend and you know, I don't have children. I have a stepdaughter. I have six godchildren. I love being with the generations below. I would like to be remembered as someone who, you know, passes on any nuggets of wisdom I might have picked up um, and could kind of help the generation coming up. Um, yeah, a good friend, someone who was there for people and um who loved the people around them you know I think that's yeah that's how I'd like to be remembered as someone who was you know a good egg mm. Mm. <laughs> really <laughs> thank you and um my last question is what's it meant for you today to come on the Marie Curie couch and have this conversation oh it's it's been really amazing actually because because I lost my father really quite a long time ago now you know you do you do get on with with one's life you get on with it and you you know you you yeah you do and you do learn to walk through that landscape the new landscape without that person as you were saying you know without those people but it, it literally has given me a chance to in a way see where I am with all of this actually and and that's good and and I was quite surprised how emotional I got talking to you about the night my father died but actually, that's a that's a good thing, you know, that those emotions are there and I I can experience them and sit with them and think about them and and think about my the friends I've lost. And yeah, it's it's a good thing to talk. I think that is so important. You know, the talking cure, it's so important. And I do 
we're coming right round to the beginning again, I do feel strongly that if my parents had been able to talk to each other about my father's imminent death, my mother would have been better prepared. Despite her illness, she would have been better prepared. And I think her grief brought on her illness quicker. It sort of sped it through uh, because she, she wasn't able to process and she hadn't spoken about it to my dad or to us. Um, so yes, it's meant a lot to be able to, you know, hopefully share and hopefully uh, reach out to other people who are experiencing things and hopefully help other people, you know. Lucy Briars, thank you for joining me on the Marie Curie Couch. Thank you for your open and honest conversation. And it really has been a joy to meet you. And you. Thank you so much. And thank you for making it a very comforting and supporting environment. Thank you very much. So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. The podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision. And the music featured is Time Lapse by Pan Oceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>